0: You're listening to Bible Truth Feed, a podcast by Christadelphianvideo.org for Christadelphians and all those seeking the truth about the Bible message. Join us now as we present our latest episode
1: The Song of Moses. And you can see it's quite a detailed song, praising God for what he has done for them in bringing them out of Egypt and then uh, bringing them through the Red Sea and being rescued from the power of the Egyptians. And the idea of a song here is is something that's played to music. Um, As we read with Miriam, there was timbrels and dancing involved. And obviously, the idea of a song is um, so that the lyrics or the words can be easily remembered. It's a memorial for what, had, what God had, the salvation God had brought for them. And it's beautiful to put things to music, like we sometimes have hymns. Uh, sadly for me, it's sometimes lots of secular music wandering around my head. And you can remember things. You can remember where you were at a certain time when you heard the song. And uh, this is what this song was supposed to do, be a reminder or memorial to them um, these words would have been sung and those words would have been um, come to mind, um, hopefully, as Moses wanted them to, to remind them of God's salvation. So hopefully tonight we'll have a look at a few themes from this song, um, which is really essentially about salvation. And like all, the Old Testament points forward as a, this as a shadow of the Lord Jesus Christ's work. So it's an incredible song of thanksgiving for the salvation God had provided Israel. And to me, that really shows the incredible meekness of the man Moses. There's really no reference to himself in this book, uh, in this song, other than the idea of the right hand, which he held up um, uh, to, to open the waters through the power of God. But really his whole focus in this song is to point the people to God's work of salvation. And there is often a temptation of leadership to point to yourself, um, whereas Moses, the meekest man, gives all the credit where it is due to God. And we can see that all the focus is on God. We see the Lord in 19 verses of this song Um, Well, 18 and a half um, is the Lord is repeated over and over again. God's memorial name, Yahweh, verse 1, verse 2, verse 3, twice, verse 6, twice, verse 11, verse 16, verse 17, twice, verse 18 and verse 19. The name of God is used. Also reference to him being God Uh, He and thy is referenced 33 times. So really Moses is pointing the people of Israel that this was done by the power of God and no one else. Um, And it really is a song of thanksgiving for the work that God had done for them. And this song um, uh, uh, is the basis of many other prayers or songs in the Bible and it's referenced quite a bit. So just we won't look at all of these, but um, Deborah in her praise to God in Judges 5 verse 1, there's reflections of this song of Moses. Hannah in her prayer to God in 1 Samuel 2, uh, there's reflections of this psalm. If we have a look at David's psalm in Psalm 68, we see um, quite a few references um, to this psalm. We'll have a look at Psalm 68 and Psalm 78. um, And we see that this psalm is referenced um, quite a lot. We won't look at all the references, but, for example, Psalm 68, verse 20, He that is our God is the God of salvation and unto God the Lord belongeth issues of death but God shall wound the head of his enemies and the hairy scalp of such as one that trespasses goes on in in his trespasses I will bring again from Bashan I will bring my people again from the depths of the sea. So often in the Psalms um, there's references back to both the, the, um, the rescuing from the Red Sea, but also references directly to this psalm. Asaph's psalm in Psalm 78. We have um, a lot of direct references there in Psalm 78. In verse 12 and 13. Marvellous things did he in the sight of their fathers in the land of Egypt, in the field of Zoan, He divided the sea and caused them to pass through, and he made the waters to stand as a heap, and it goes on to say in in verse 54, and he brought them to the border of his sanctuary, which is the end of that psalm, uh, the Song of Moses, and even to this mountain, which his right hand has purchased. So again, direct reference to um, the Psalm of Moses. Mary references some of the words in the Song of Moses in her prayer in Luke chapter one, verse forty-six onwards. And it's interesting in Revelation. There's a direct reference to in Revelation 15, a direct reference to the Psalm, uh, the Song of Moses. There's actually two Songs of Moses. Does anyone know where the other one is? Uh, no, but like an actual Song of Moses in. So, but I believe Revelation 15 is referencing the um, Exodus 15 one. So I think it's Deuteronomy 32. There's another song of Moses. But in Revelation 15, we see in regards, say just verse 3, and they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and marvellous are thy works, Lord God Almighty, just and true are thy ways, thou king of the saints. So Revelation sort of puts the song of Moses and the song of the Lamb of God together as if they were one, because they are. They're referencing the Lamb of God's work of salvation. So we've seen as through our studies of Exodus, the, um, I guess, the process of salvation, We had the Passover, the killing of the lamb, and the preparation as they headed out of Egypt. They left Egypt and the slavery behind. Uh, They were no longer servants to the king of Egypt. They went through Etham, and then they went to that point which they seemed to be trapped at, at the Red Sea. And then the wonderful salvation that God brought in Exodus 14, where they crossed the Red Sea through God parting the, the Red Sea and then destroying the, the, the army of Egypt. So I guess as far as this song in Exodus 15, I've got no idea of, of um, its poetry in that sense um, because it's translated obviously into English. We probably lose a lot of the poetry and repetition um, and what sort of music it was sung to. But obviously, the main thing that we are to learn from it are the themes, as we had it read for us. So verse 1 goes on to say, "Um, I will sing unto the Lord, for he hath triumphed gloriously. And triumphed and gloriously are the exact same word. So it's, again, the idea of this repetition in this song. It's the exact same word that basically God has triumphed and triumphed. And his triumph was glorious. It is God's victory. That's the first thing that Moses wants the people to know. As we said at the beginning, Moses points all the thanksgiving for this salvation to God. Um, John Thomas sort of points to the fact that this was like a memorial. It's like our memorial. where to come together as often as we can to remember the victory of God over sin through the Lord Jesus Christ. And the similar principle to this song is to remind them over and over again of the salvation that God provided over sin, over the power of Egypt, and that it is washed away in the waters of the Red Sea. And then from that point, they go into a new life, directly walking towards the promised land. Paul puts it quite beautifully in this sense that God has brought the salvation and shows that all these different aspects, you couldn't have the Passover and that couldn't be enough. There couldn't be just the the slaying of the Lord Jesus Christ. You actually had to have that. You had to have the leaving of Egypt, leaving um, slavery behind, and you actually had to be washed in the Red Sea and Egypt had to be washed away as you then journeyed past that to the Promised Land. And the Apostle Paul, in two areas, I think, puts that really beautifully. In um, The one to do with baptism, which is essentially what this song is all about. In Romans 6, verse 3, we see, Know ye not that so many of you as are baptised into Jesus Christ were baptised into his death? Is that the end of it? Is it just the slaying of the lamb? He goes on to say, No, we have to actually walk in newness of life. For if we are planted together in the likeness of his death, we shall be also in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, as the Egyptians were destroyed in the sea, then that henceforth we should not serve sin, for he that is dead is freed from sin. Now, if we be dead with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him so as the egyptians were destroyed israel lived as they went and and passed through the red sea towards the promised land and he goes on to talk about the fact that we are no longer servants or slaves to sin to egypt but we are now servants to the living god and in 1 Corinthians 15, this idea of coming out of the water, being raised from the dead, which is what, uh, be, which is what Moses is thankful for, again is put beautifully in 1 Corinthians 15. Because the fact is, if they, they were just left slavery and that was it, um, they weren't washed in the Red Sea, then that was only part of the salvation. They were not raised to a new life. In 1 Corinthians 15, basically the Apostle Paul says, if there's no such thing as the resurrection, we're miserable and it's no use even being a believer of Christ. But now, he says in verse 20, Christ is risen from the dead and become the first fruits of them that slept. And he goes on to say, similar to the Song of Moses, but who gives the victory? He says in verse 57, but thanks be to God who giveth us the victory, through the Lord Jesus Christ. What is our response? Therefore, my beloved brethren, be ye steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as ye know your labour is not in vain in the Lord. So, the idea of Israel coming out of the, the, the Red Sea as a new people, washed from their sins, raised from the dead, the, the Egypt was washed away, and they were headed towards the promised land and this is what this song was supposed to remind them of so how was this done well well we look in um, verse verse one the horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea and the idea as probably most of us know but it's good to review it the idea of the horse is the power and strength of a nation or of human beings in their armies, and we know that God did not delight in the strength of the horse. Um, Psalm 147, verse 10, He delighteth not in the strength of the horse horse. He taketh not pleasure in the legs of man, or the strength of a man. It goes in Deuteronomy, but he shall not, this is to do with the kings, they should not multiply horses to themselves and what, what does he connect this with? Nor cause the people to return to Egypt. So he links the power of the horse with a return of mind um, and, and possibly physically to Egypt. To the end that he should multiply horses for as much as the Lord has said, he shall henceforth return no more that way. So we've turned away, and Israel had turned away from Egypt and the power and strength of that that nation. We've turned away from sin and the sense of of strength that people seem that it gives them. But we see that God is not impressed by the strength of mankind and does not want us to return to that. In Zechariah 10 and they shall be as mighty as men which tread down their enemies in the mire of the streets in the battle, and they shall fight because the Lord is with them, and the riders on horses shall be confounded. So God has the power over these um, creatures that to humankind, I guess the, you know, we're seeing the, the, the modern version of it in our day of the, the tanks and missiles which are a reflection Of the strength of human might and human armies but God says he can confound them he can destroy them with his power so they were thrown into the sea the Egyptians and their horses and God did not want them to associate with that anymore or return in mind or spirit to Egypt so the challenge for us then is where does our confidence lie Look at the beauty of verse 2, the amount of um, descriptive language of God and His power. So we see why uh, Moses loves God, the Lord is my strength, and that has the idea of confidence. So we are to be confident in God. He is our song, He's to be the praise that comes out of our mouth. So He's our confidence. He should be the one we praise, and he has become my salvation. And it's interesting, um, I don't know much about Hebrew, but that's a feminine form, and a lot of the commentators relate that to us being the bride of Christ and God providing the salvation through the Lord Jesus Christ. So the association of the bride and groom. Um, he says, he is my God, or L, his strength. So, again, all the focus is on God. He's our confidence. He's our praise. He's our salvation. He's our groom. He's our strength. And he is our home. I will prepare an habitation for God. And it's a challenge for us. God is to reside in us, as the Apostle Paul again says, that we are God's temple, and God dwells within us. So it's a challenge for us that we are his habitation, that God would feel comfortable dwelling in us. And to Moses, he was confident to say that God was at home in him. And I will prepare in habitation, my father's God. So again, pointing them back to my father's God or Elohim, mighty ones, of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, again pointing them back to the fathers of Israel and what God had done for them and the promises given to them of salvation, that they would um, live forever and their seed would be as the stars of the heavens. Um, It goes on to say that he will exalt him and the idea is to raise God up, to actually lift him up to the highest esteem in our lives. So amazing in that one verse, all the the descriptive phrases. He's our confidence. He's our praise. He's our salvation. He's our strength. He's our home. He dwells within us. He's our mighty ones. And he is to be raised up in in our thinking and in our lives. Why is he like this. It, well, the Moses says the Lord is a man of war. And that's an interesting phrase. It's, it is essentially that. It's a person, a man who is a man of violence that will destroy his enemies. And I guess if you're on the right side of God, that is a very good thing. God is a jealous God. He will fight for his people. Um, we have examples of anger when Christ was crucified the earth darkened and it talks in psalms of him riding his chariot and the earth shaking and the the earth going dark during that time so god is a jealous god and will be and does get angry when his people us are treated in an evil way and who would you want on your side than a god like this who is a man of war that would stick up for you, that would destroy those, that would destroy God's people. Um, Why is he a man of war? It says because his name is Yahweh. And without going back to it, we've looked at it a bit and we will be looking at it. We know that God's name, Yahweh, means I will be who I will be. And the idea that not only is God merciful, gracious, long-suffering, abundant in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, but He will by no means clear the guilty. So it's not a, a random judgment of just anyone, but God will become angry and judge the guilty, which is a fair thing. We always uh, angered at injustice, and we want to see justice done. And God is the same. He, his righteous anger will bring justice to the earth as it did to the Egyptians. Um, he goes on to say, he says, Pharaoh's chariots and the host he hath cast into the sea. His chosen captains are also drowned in the sea. And the idea there is quite violent. As we've just read, he's a man of war. And the idea of cast is to actually hurl them into the sea. It's got the idea of of violence, um, hurling them into the sea in a violent way. And this is the way God looks at sin. It is to be destroyed. It is to be cast out of our lives. It is to be destroyed in the waters of baptism. And we are to be raised as new people. Again, the Apostle Paul puts it beautifully in Galatians chapter 5, verse 24, where he, this is how he says we should treat sin in our life. It's not the same uh, description of casting something into the sea, but it is also showing how we should treat sin in our lives. So in Galatians 5, verse 24... And they that are Christ have crucified the flesh with the affections and lusts. And of course, we know crucifixion was a very violent death. And the Apostle Paul is saying that's how we should treat sin and flesh in our life, the affections and lusts that it brings forth. We should destroy them violently in our life. We should crush them. We should crucify those things as the Lord Jesus Christ did in his life. And he did this, he cast the, 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 the powers of Egypt, the captains, the greatest of human strength, he just cast them into the sea as if they were nothing. So that's the strength of our God. And at the end there, which um, links over to what Jared Edgecombe was talking about, the idea of the Red Sea, that has the idea of the Sea of Weeds, And that's how God, again, looks at the things of life, the sins that choke us. He cast them in and they were destroyed um, as sin can destroy us if we allow weeds to grow. So the idea, the Red Sea is translated there, the Sea of Weeds. And I don't know whether you remember Jared talking about the reeds, the idea of the reeds. Um, They're trying to find where Israel would have crossed and there's certain sections that have these reedy weeds that grow, and God says that's where I have cast the captains of the Egyptians into the sea of weeds, where they belong. So, verse five, they sank. Uh, imagine they're full with their armor. This is the type of armor they had: the metal plates that ran over their body, protected their necks and and um, And weak parts of their body um, And these things would have weighed them down As it says the depths have covered them They sank into the bottom like a stone So as the waters came in Their armour would have just pulled them down Into the sea Now I guess the challenge for us is That's what sin does to us in our life If we allow it It can weigh us down It can burden us And can pull us down Into the sea. Um, Again, Hebrews chapter 12, uh, probably the Apostle Paul again, but in Hebrews chapter 12 um, we have uh, a similar theme. Hebrews chapter 12, wherefore seeing we are also compassed about with a great cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every burden or weight or The armour of the flesh that is weighing us down and the sin that does so easily beset us. So the idea that we shouldn't weigh ourselves down with the armour and the things of this world because it will just pull us down into the sea like the Egyptian soldiers. Um, We continue on. The right hand, O Lord, is become glorious in strength. And that's a reference back to Moses lifting his arms as they crossed the sea. But also, um, again, as we know, but uh, it's good to remind ourselves, is a reflection of that greater than Moses, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is considered the right arm of our God. So in Psalm 80, verse 17, Let thy hand be upon the man of thy right hand, upon the son of man whom thou madest strong for thyselves, with, with allusions to the Lord Jesus Christ in this Psalm of David. The Lord at thy, The Lord at thy right hand shall strike through kings in the day of his wrath. Again, pointing forward to the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And literally in Acts chapter 2 therefore being exalted the right hand of God exalt um, therefore being by the right hand of God exalted to do with the Lord Jesus Christ and having received of the father the promise of the Holy Spirit he shed forth this which you now see and hear and a beautiful one in Isaiah 41 verse 10 do not fear for I am with you do not be dismayed for I am your God I will strengthen you and help you. I will uphold you with the righteous right hand, all pointing forward to the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Which is really, you know, what all this song is about. Um, Now, it's interesting in verse... 9, it, it talks, uh, well, verse, verse 7, we'll have a quick look at, and in the greatness of thine excellency thou hast rose up against thee, thou settest forth thy wrath, which consumed them as stubble. Again, all these allusions pointing forward to like the, the, the image of Daniel, where it was ground into powder and blown away, the, the strength of man, the idea of the chaff being blown away, all these allusions to other areas of scripture. Um, um, In attacking Israel, though, they were really attacking God, which is good for us to know as well, because God takes that very seriously. As we saw with Christ, his righteous anger, even though he knew that Christ had to go through that death, knew he was going to be raised in three days, God's anger is still Towards those that act unjustly So it's God that rose up And sent forth that wrath To consume them as stubble And I guess the challenge to us Is verse 9 The enemy said I will pursue I will overtake I will divide the spoil My lust shall be satisfied upon them I will draw my sword And my hand shall destroy them So even though we are following God and our Lord Jesus Christ, we are still being chased by the enemy of sin, and that is a challenge to us. The idea—I um, think I've got it there. No, I don't. But the idea, the word, um, I will, my hand shall destroy them. If you look in the margin and you look in a concordance, it has the idea of repossession. So the enemy, the Egyptians, were saying. I want them back. I want to repossess the Israelites. I want them back. And this is what sin tries to do to us. Even though we've gone through the waters, we're still being chased by sin in this mortal life. It still wants to repossess our temples. It still wants to take over our minds. And like a, a tenet, it wants to grab that tenet out, God, and repossess it with its own Um, Egyptian thoughts and sinful um, lusts Um, and so that's the challenge for us even and that's why we have to be reminded constantly of the greatness of God because the enemy always wants to repossess us so what then separates God from all the other gods all the other mighty ones, whether they're people or what people perceive to be gods. Well, Moses summarises it beautifully in these three things. What separates God from anything or anyone else? Firstly, as we've seen, the references to his name over and over again. um, uh, The first thing that distinguishes God is his name, and that's why it's a memorial name given to Moses, I will be who I will be. The name expresses his whole purpose, his whole character, and in that name we can see everything about our God. Who is like unto thee, O Lord among the gods? Who is like thee, glorious in holiness? What's another thing that separates God Is his holiness, his purity. And he calls us as well to be pure. Leviticus 19, verse 2 Speak unto all the congregation of the children of Israel and say unto them, Ye shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. So, what makes God magnificent is not only his name and his purpose. But it's his holiness. He's able to provide a means of salvation to Israel and to us while still keeping his holiness and his righteousness. What's another thing that uh, separates God is, is his wonderful works. In verse 11, doing wonders. And Israel had just seen an amazing wonder before their eyes, a sea parting. And the Egyptians consumed by that sea. So essentially Moses is saying keep these three things in mind if you don't want sin to repossess your mind, your temple. He's saying keep God's name in your mind, his purpose, his character in your mind. Keep his holiness, keep purity in your life even as God is pure and always remember his wonderful works because those things that he has done in the past should remind us that he can do those things in the future so that's in, in essence you know three things that God wants us uh, that Moses wants us to remember God's name his holiness and his wonderful works which is essentially the salvation he wrought to Israel and to us through the Lord Jesus Christ And these are the works that he did. He stretched out his right hand and destroyed the Egyptians. Not only did he do that, he then leads Israel in his mercy. So it involves those two things, goodness and severity of God balanced perfectly. The destruction of Egypt with his right hand, but similarly with his hand leading Israel and redeeming them or purchasing them. Which is an interesting word. As we know in Acts chapter 20, um, we see that the ecclesia, the elders were to look after the ecclesia because the Apostle Paul says that they were purchased with the Lord Jesus Christ's blood. So this redemption doesn't come at no cost to God. It comes at the purchase of it comes at the shedding of the blood of the Passover lamb and by extension in the future to moses by the the shedding of the blood of our lord jesus christ so he leads his people and redeems them and purchases them and brings them into his holy habitation or the promised land and we know that didn't happen straight away there was a journey through the wilderness as we have this journey through our lives um, to um, that time when we hope that we see the promised land, whether that's in our lifetime or in some time in the future. So what happens? Well, the people of the surrounding as they're heading towards Canaan now hear of this mighty act. So Moses is now prophesying essentially because none of this has, uh, had happened as yet. They hadn't started their journey into Canaan. But this also some commentators believe and I, I tend to as well is pointing forward to the Lord Jesus Christ's work of his work as he returns to the earth to destroy the nations that, um, that oppose him and to turn those that oppose him into, um, into belief and also establishing his sanctuary in the Holy Land. But this is essentially what Moses was doing, bringing the children of Israel into the Holy Land. And of course, news spread of this mighty destruction of the Egyptians and the people of Palestine, people of Edom, people of Moab and Canaan were trembling because of what they had heard. Fear and dread shall fall upon them by the greatness of thine arm, the idea of his strength again, And they shall be as still as a stone or frozen in fear that has the idea of and we know that that did happen Um, who maybe in the first city they came across who had already heard of um the what had happened yep Jericho. rahab yep did you say that or yeah so rahab had already heard so the news had already spread And Rahab had already heard. This is what she says. And she said unto the men, I know that the Lord hath given you the land, and that your terror is fallen upon us, and that all the inhabitants of the land faint because of you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt, and when you did what you did unto the two kings of the Amorites that were on the other side of Jordan, Sihon and Og, whom you utterly destroyed. And as soon as we had heard these things, literally, as the prophecy says, our hearts did melt, neither did there remain any more courage in any man because of you, for the Lord your God, he is God in heaven above and in earth beneath. And they go back to Joshua and say, the inhabitants of the country do faint because of us. So this prophecy of them going into the land of Canaan and the people being fainting and being frozen with fear actually did come to pass and will also come to pass in the future when the Lord Jesus Christ returns and those that oppose him will be destroyed and he will turn the hearts of many nations towards God. Um, so I've alluded to the fact um, some, uh, we, we won't go into it running out of time, but some Link the idea of Eden, uh, Edom, to those um, that oppose Christ in the future um, and are utterly destroyed, and the idea amazed there is terrified in verse 15, and the idea of Moab um, being those that um, are terrified but turn to Christ um, when He returns. Um, but there's a lot in that, so we won't get into that uh, tonight. Um, So the idea then of them being brought into the promised land Which hadn't occurred yet This prophecy um, song that's turned into a prophecy of Moses Verse 17 Thou shalt bring them in and plant them in the mountain of thine inheritance In the place, O Lord, which thou hast made for thee to dwell in In the sanctuary, O Lord, which thy hands have established So the idea that God had planted Israel or would plant Israel in this land and expected them to grow and expected them to produce fruit, which is the same for us. We are, now that we're planted in Christ, God expects us to grow, to mature, to um, produce the fruit of the Spirit in our lives. In Psalm 80, we read, thou hast brought a vine out of Egypt, so he's brought this tender little plant, thou hast cast out the heathen, and thou hast planted it. Thou prepared us room before it, and did cause it to take deep root, and it filled the land. And unfortunately, that, some of those words go on to say that God then took away the hedge because they saw the hedge that God had planted around them to protect them rather than seeing that as a protective thing to stop the wild animals getting in and slaughtering them or eating them. They were looking over the top of the, the, the hedge saying, oh, look how wonderful life is out there and back in Egypt. And therefore God took the hedge down and they were destroyed at certain times in their history. And of course we know again in, in Romans that that allowed us to then be grafted into that plant where we now have the opportunity to grow in Christ. And he goes on to say that um, they would dwell in the sanctuary. And in Isaiah 56, which I'll just read to you, it says, Even unto them will I give in mine house and within my walls a place and a name better than the sons and of daughters. I will give them an everlasting name, also the sons of the stranger that join themselves to the Lord, which is us by essence, to serve him and to love the name of the Lord, to be his servants, everyone that keepeth the Sabbath from polluting it and taketh hold of my covenant. So the idea that the sanctuary was to be a place of worship but it wasn't in essence the, the walls or the, the building as such it was to be a place of people to worship God um, and that the name of God was to be in those people as um, I will be who I will be. Um, so he goes on to say the Lord shall reign forever and ever for the horse of Pharaoh went in with his chariots and with his horsemen into the sea. And the Lord brought again the waters of the sea unto them. But the children of Israel went on dry land in the midst of the sea. So he rounds off this with the eternal promise that the Lord would reign forever and ever. And we know that will be through the Lord Jesus Christ. where in Luke chapter 1 verse 33 as Mary says, in essence, quotes a bit of this song. She realised that it was about her son and he shall reign over the house of Jacob forever and of his kingdom there shall be no end. So he then reiterates what he had done for them, his mighty works that he had destroyed the people of Egypt and um, they were to have sanctuary in his holy hill forever and ever. So obviously this is all pointing forward as a shadow of things to come, the Lord Jesus Christ who will reign forever and ever and finally have victory over sin and death in the future. So I guess the main point of this song is to remember. God wants us to remember that God provides the victory. It isn't of our own strength, any of our own doing. He provides the victory over sin and death he saves us from slavery and can bring us through the waters of baptism cleanse us from our sins provided that we become a dwelling place for him and his holiness in our lives that we might be planted so we grow and produce fruit and that is all the work of god he has already provided the victory for us that should give us confidence that as the apostle paul had the confidence to say there is a crown of glory laid up for me and we can have that same confidence that god has already provided the victory if in essence we don't allow egypt to repossess us our praise and our actions are then a response to this victory that god has provided Remember each day God's name and the purpose that that involves. The idea of this song was to remember it, to sing it, for it to go in your mind. And that's why um, Jesus commands us to remember him as often as we can, because he knows we're forgetful. And he wants us to remember as often as he can God's name and the purpose within that, his holiness and the wonderful works that he does. And if he was able to do those wonderful works in the past, we can have confidence that he can do that in our lives now and in the future destroy sin and death because God always finishes what he starts. We are to be confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ.